Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. Everything's running smoothly. Yo, yo, yo! Yow! What is going on? My name's Hartzell, and this ride here. It's your KC Word, Kansas City, a happy Thursday to the KC Morning Hoes on the show today. I can honestly say this is probably one of the most candid conversations that I have ever had with an elected official in my entire career. Yeah, City Council Member Kevin O'Neill of the 1st District. He's going to be on your KC Morning Show. I'm a union man. He is also a union man. We're my union folks, huh? Power to the mother effing people. Your city councilman, Mr. Kevin O'Neill, his story is honestly kind of fascinating. Has taken so many more walks than I would have ever thought. And that made this interview really that much more better. Back in your feeds tomorrow. Rate, review, subscribe. Just tell your friends about us, yeah? We're trying to move on up. Kansas City. Oh, we're moving on up. Yeah, we are. My name's Hartzell. A good day to be a Kansas City and oh, always. We'll see ya in the morning. Bye. That creed, a creed at the core of every American whose story is not yet written. Yes, we can. The KC Morning Show. Super excited to have this man on the show. He is a pro-union man. He is pro-Kansas City, a fifth-generation Kansas Cityan, to be exact, and currently represents the first district on the Kansas City City Council. His political journey has taken many walks from radio to newspaper to now an elected official, and I am so excited to dive into all of that. Councilman Kevin O'Neill, my friend, welcome to your KC Morning Show. Hello, Hartzell. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you for being here. And so we're going to jump right in on this. Your story to now being an elected official, you did radio, apparently, which we're going to dig into. A pro-union type newspaper, and now you are in City Hall. What kind of route? Did you ever think this was going to be a thing? No, I I, <laughs> I uh, wanted to be a football player all through high school and huh. played in college. And I, uh, you know, I thought that's what uh, I was going to be. And then I realized after about my sophomore year I, in college, I was too slow and too small to play anything past what I was. So I, uh, yeah, my first job came out. My dad was friends with Mike Murphy, who was a local radio legend uh, back in the 70s and 80s. And uh, he was switching stations and, and he, we were uh, having a drink one night at my house and his and he was there and he asked me if I wanted to produce his show. And I had spent the last two weeks before that, three weeks sending out resumes for radio stations. So that's how I got in. And, uh, you know, I spent seven years in, in radio, first on air, second in production and third in sales. So, you know, it's like everything else. You learn what do you have a passion for? And I, what I had a passion for, I wasn't that good at. So I tried to see what, what I could make money at, and I wasn't very good at that. And <laughs> I think that's how your career escalates or, or moves forward is you narrow down all the things you're not good at and find the thing you are. When I bought the paper in 91, I found the love of my life. You know, it was a, uh, it was a passion between labor and newspapers, and uh, I was just lucky enough to be at the right place at the right time to, to do that. I have other questions I want to ask you, but you just opened up a rabbit hole that I, I want to go down. Because I think so many of us 20, 24 months ago, Kevin, you know, when the pandemic started, that was a punch in the face to a lot of folks. Everything yeah. that we thought we were doing now, we don't do anymore. You know, as a radio guy myself, I got furloughed. For so many of us, it was that moment where are we going to do this anymore? Are we doing something else? What, what are we passionate about? I guess using what you just said in this moment, 
Do you see any parallels? Oh yeah, you know I I I I know this sounds cliche, but I think in, in the midst of everybody's darkest moments come their greatest opportunities. Most of us, you know, get down in the dumps. I, I got fired from a radio job. I, I literally was on a vacation, came back, and the uh, general manager called me in, and I thought, oh, good, you know, they fired that other guy, so now they're going to give me his list, and I was going to make all sorts of money and walked in there and got fired. And, you know, it tells you, okay, maybe this isn't what I want to really do because I'm not – I'm not obviously making anybody seem that I'm good at this. So I just think opportunities come in so many different forms. And, and you know, I, I never thought I was a very smart guy, and, and I still don't. <laughs> but, you know, my father always used to tell me, know your weaknesses and work around. And I think that's the best advice I ever got because I had a lot of weaknesses. So I, I, it wasn't hard to identify that. <laughs> but it, it, is, it is finding that one thing or two things or whatever it is that motivates you to be working at 10 o'clock at night and not worried about it. You know, not thinking, oh my God, I put in 12 hours. It's more like, oh God, I've only put in 12 hours and I got to get this done and I want to get it done. And I think that's what I found is I found that that job that didn't have parameters, didn't have time frames, didn't have anything other than I wanted to put together a newspaper that people would be proud of. And that's when I found that I wasn't a bad employee. I was just a bad manager. I didn't, I didn't manage people well. I was very good at doing the work myself, but not very good at telling other people how to do it. We're going to get back to the newspaper very, very quickly. But I would like for you, if you could, just tell us about your district. You're a fifth-generation Kansas Cityan, Kevin. That's incredible. You know this place pretty well. Yeah, I love this city. I mean, I, I've, I've grown up in every part of it. I grew up right around 55th and Troost, uh, between Rock Hill and Troost. I uh, went to St. Francis over on 51st and Troost, and I went over to Bishop Hogan. Started at Deal Sal down at 16th and Paseo. It closed, and then I went over to Hogan. My dad was in politics on a peripheral level. He uh, ran campaigns and uh, ran Joe Teasdale's campaign in the 70s, some Senate campaigns, Mayor Wheeler's campaigns, yeah. etc. And then my brother was has been in politics. He just retired. I, I think he's been one of the most successful political guys in, in, in the city because he, he only did politics from an issue standpoint. He did he did issues and he, he'd market them. And I knew I had a good chance of winning when, when he said he'd do my campaign. Then I moved, I, I grew up in the city and then I moved up north about 10, 12 years ago. And I just love the Northland has such an abundance of green space and, and so much space. I love that. And, and I've always felt like I could bridge some things because I think, you know, one of the problems in this city is we're surrounded by borders. You know, we've got the river that separates north from south. We've got the uh, state line that separates Kansas from Missouri. Troost, which separates black from white. And all these borders just have maintained their presence for ever since I've been, you know, born. And, and you've got you to gotta find ways to eliminate them. And we just haven't yet. It's, it's hard to figure out how to, how to beat that. So when you're talking about some of those issues, I guess, what was your political awakening, your coming of age? You know, when you're starting to put your principles to the paper and you're starting to realize that you are someone that believes in collective bargaining and workers' rights and power to the people, you know, that didn't come overnight. Was that something that the newspaper kind of helped you shape or is that something where you're just out in the community? You've been here for five generations. You just kind of know your folks or maybe a little bit of both. You know, you know when you're growing up, you, you know, and, and I appreciate guys like you who actually start young with a philosophy and an ideology. And I think that's important, but it's it's very rare among young people. I think they're so focused on, you know, they're getting married, they're having children, they got a job that they're focused on. They're, they got a lot of brain power going out to things that have nothing to do with politics, right? And 
when I bought the paper, I kind of was in that mentality. And then I started writing about things that were labor-oriented or union-oriented or collective bargaining-oriented, prevailing wage-oriented. And I started putting all the pieces together and realizing, wow, this is, you know, this is the middle class and it's slowly eroding. And the reason is, is corporations are now, you know, they're more intent on finding uh, money for their stockholders, uh, earnings, dividends, and everything else. The, the people became secondary part of their plan. And uh, that, that always bothered me. <laughs> the one statement that, that made the most impact on me was a contractor, a developer back 10 years ago, 15, maybe 20 years ago. I was interviewing about a project he was doing and, and I asked him, it was about janitors. And he was a fairly new company in the Northland that is now one of the biggest developers in the city. The CEO said to me, when I was asking him, he was getting rid of a union janitorial service and putting in a non-union janitorial service. And I asked him, I said, well, why, why, why is it important, you know, to you to go to a, a non-union janitorial service? They've always done, you know, the union service always did a great job. And he said, well, I will tell you that labor is nothing more than a commodity to be bought and sold at the lowest possible price. And that's when I realized, wow, you know, that wasn't only his philosophy. That was a major philosophy in corporations. That stood out to me as being one of the saddest moments I, I can remember in my in my uh, interviewing process during the last 30 years is to hear somebody say that, that, that labor is nothing more than a commodity because it's so much more. It's people and it's the difference between them being able to send their kids to college or to, for them to uh, take a vacation or them to buy a boat, you know, all those things that the American dream is made of, they wanted to destroy. God knows they've done a very good job of doing that. You know, for some of us that awakening or just us finally drawing that line in the sand, sometimes it's, it's a slow build. But for some of us, maybe yeah. it is just that one thing that somebody said that will stick with you for the rest of your life. That moment for me is is hearing that Reagan speech when he says the scariest yeah. thing you can hear is I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I think that was some of the most detrimental words in the yes. history of this country. You're standing for the working class. You, you're talking about workers issues, really just the issues of us, of our people. And you're saying right. this to someone who represents the Northland, the first district. And I think right. that on surface level, some folks would not expect you to be saying that based off of whatever they think the Northland is. You know, you saying that truce divide between black and white. I mean, my brother preached, but that's something that I don't know we hear enough up north. But I think you know that those sentiments are there. So I guess how do we break some of these narratives so that we're all working together collectively in solidarity to make our city better? There's a lot of words you can say to do all these things. But the reality of it is more people like to talk than do. You know, a lot of the conversations are so difficult to have because they are they are scary conversations. Whether you're black or white, those conversations are difficult to have. And you've got to have you've got to have the strength again kind of back to knowing your weaknesses and knowing your strengths and debating or arguing amongst those. And so it's hard for me to say what works because I'm an old guy and I don't really care what people think about me anymore. I, I think I've spent my most of my life trying to do the right thing. Well, I shouldn't say that. I, I think you come to your a point in your life. You know, I think mine was about 44. I went through a divorce. I was struggling. My business was, you know, I had started the paper, but it was in the very infancy of it. Um, so I was, I was always struggling. And, and then it came to, you know, when I, when I had to go out on my own and start learning to be a single parent, uh, a, you know, my ex-wife had done everything in the house and all I had to do was go to work. I learned about being a, 
human being and just uh, doing all the right things and making the right decisions and how wonderful life could be. You know, it's kind of the old, well, it's midnight and I got to be at work at six. Should I stay out one more hour or two more hours? <laughs> yep. And you finally get to that point. No, I'm not staying. <laughs> Took me a lot longer, I think, than most people. But Kevin, it's time to go that? home. Yes. <laughs> now you can't even get me out. <laughs> I think the tough conversations, you know, like you and I sitting here and talking about things that are racial or good, bad, and different, but you have to have those conversations. And and I I mean, I think that, you know, I'm I'm 65 years old. And today, those conversations are even more difficult to have than when I was 35 years mm-hmm. old or even 18 when I was at Bishop Hogan and, you know, we had we had a very mixed class. We were very diverse. When I went to college, we were very diverse. You know, my football team had probably 50-50, black and white. And you'd have those and you grow with those guys. And, you know, you go in a trench hole with them and you trust them as people, not as a black guy or a white guy. You just learn to trust them. And there's just not a lot of that anymore. The 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 separation of races, and, and it's very disturbing. And I and I guess that's why when I decided to run for office, I felt like I had more of a a viewpoint that understood a lot more than just what's wrong with the suburbs or what's what's wrong with the urban core. I think you made a really good point there. You said, you know, when you're in there in the trenches with your folks, black, white, Asian, Pacific Islander, those are your people and you want to see your people do well. You want to see your people succeed. I'm wondering if maybe that's our angle. So much about our conversation about race is just inherently adversarial, whereas I think maybe we do better, and this is why I love talking to union folks, because if we can find a way to make this conversation about class instead of just strictly race, then all the boats are rising with that tide or something like that. I forgot how the phrase goes, but you know what I'm saying. You bet. High tide rises all boats. You bet. And, and it's so true. And you know, one of, one of the things as a labor guy I wanted to come on here and do, one of the most difficult things that I've seen in my 30 years in labor is generating a more diverse culture. You know, I remember back in 96, 97, there was a report that came out that said, I think it was 85% of the construction labor in the next 10 years. And this was in 97. So, you know, they're expecting by 2007 that the that 90%, 85 to 90% of the construction industry would be minorities and women. And that has never taken place. That, that, that metamorphosis has remained 80% white. And that's one of the things that I I feel like it's mirroring the country, you know, that there is no blending like we all anticipated there would be, especially in, you know, in labor. And I want to I want to promote the fact that union laborers can make anywhere from thirty five to seventy five dollars an hour. That's a career. That's not a job. And I've always tried to promote the fact that we have to get more diverse. We have to have more women and we're reaching out to underserved communities. They need that career. They don't need a job. There's plenty of jobs out there, but people that want a career that can raise their children, send them to a good school, put them in college, you know, and and all that. That's what we want to make available to everybody. You know, it's a lot easier said than done. And the fight continues. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it does continue. And I, I, I think the older you get, the, the, the slower you think everything is, you know what I mean? Uh, You know, you, you've, you've fought for the same thing for 30 years. You, you make, you make tiny steps and, and, you know, the older you get, you just want to see that quicker that you want to see that 
happen quicker. It should happen quicker. But, you know, I'm at City Hall now, so I, I have a whole new opinion of what quick is. <laughs> well, as we transition now to talking a little bit more about the news of the day, piggybacking off of what you just said, are you still encouraged? COVID, that's still raging and still very much a thing in this country, in this world. Homelessness and those being affected by homelessness, tenants' rights, food insecurities, insert all these different issues that we have in Kansas City. Are you still right. are you still encouraged? Yeah, I'm in, I'm encouraged. You know, the the squeaky wheel gets the oil, and I'm not always a big fan of that. I, I think City Hall is a, you know, we have so much to do better. And uh, and I get that, you know, that you're not going to make changes overnight. Everything is a slow crawl here. I was in a meeting the other day, and I, I guess to homelessness, or not so much homelessness, but low-income housing. You know, I was in a meeting the other day, I'm on the port board, and we had a, a project come up that's a, a luxury apartments that has a, an attachment of low-income housing, which was 70%, 80% AFI, which is average family income. So you've got average family income is $86,000. You've got rents for studios at $800 on an AFI. Well, an AFI is four people and their studios are $800 a month. Well, that's not low-income housing. Four people can't live in a, in a 600 square foot unit. And I guess what I'm seeing is that development is driving low-income housing. And, and that shouldn't be the way it is. You know, they're going to set 20% set-asides with low-income housing and, and affordable housing, right? And we don't have a plan in place that says, this is what we're going to do. Because you're not going to get low-income housing by the development community coming in and doing it on their own. They have to be incentivized. There has to be some subsidies. The city has to pay for that low-income housing to a certain point. It's a public-private partnership that we need to be better at. Bill Kimball building some duplexes over on 20th and Waldron. And I was over there yesterday showing what he had just finished building them. You know, he's got eight units, right? And they're beautiful. I mean, they're really, a, he did a great job, but he's doing infill. He's taking empty lots in the city and building this. And that's what low-income housing is. Taking the land that the land bank owns here in Kansas City and getting a guy like Bill who's going to do this. He, he knows where to find money. He knows how to get tax credits, et cetera, et cetera. Hopefully he'll have 100 and 200 of those in the next five years. You know, We just need people like that to come into the city and start building. And, and Bill you know, grew up in the area. That's where I see you know, where we start growing a, a plan that actually has how are we going to reach that level of low-income housing. I think the city manager said we have the demand for 10,000 units in the next five to 10 years. So where are we going to get that? And I just don't like the idea that we're letting the development community tell us what we're going to do. They're going to build these luxury apartments, but they're going to put 10%, 15% set aside for low-income housing. And, and, and I think that's the wrong approach. I, I think we have to we have to drive that bus. Developers are going to drive it to their house. They're not going to drive it to our house. Well, and I think you make such a good point earlier when you mentioned we don't just need jobs, we need careers. And yes, there are jobs that happen when you have to build these new high rises, these luxury you know, apartments right. and condos. But what happens once those buildings get built? Now, it doesn't matter that you can't afford to live there, but hey, for a few months, we gave some folks some jobs. So we're bringing all these things downtown, all these places to live. But if you can't afford them, then you're never going to end up going downtown. How do we keep the growth in our area without it being just a new form of gentrification, to be honest with you. And, you know, I think that's the hardest question for any city to answer. And, and we get a lot of information from our sister cities. You take the Austins, the Nashvilles, the other cities in the in the region that are kind of competitive against us. And, and we're all facing the same questions. You know, how do we how do we build 
an area out without gentrifying it. My God, there's there's places you know that have in the city in the urban core that have six seven hundred thousand dollar houses. Well, what happens is now you start getting other four hundred and five hundred thousand dollar houses around them, and you know it just spreads like that. And then all of a sudden, the people that have been there for 30, 50 years can't afford to pay the property taxes on their places anymore because everything's gone up so high. Hartzell, that's a question for the ages. We are having this discussion at City Hall on growth and development. Where do we restrict it? Where do we encourage it? At the end of the day, the most difficult part of this is that developers are going to go where they want to go. It's when do you determine they need incentives for a project versus they don't need incentives for a project. And very difficult divide there is as to what what the right way to do you keep doing development and the only way you're going to do it is with incentives or do you just hope that by not giving them incentives they'll build it anyway. And I will give the mayor credit he is he is focused on it. We have a scorecard so you know if if you can it's called Advanced KC. And if you have this scorecard, it lists your project by if you're doing this, if you're adding low-income housing, if you're putting prevailing wage on it, if you're doing this and this and this, then you have a better shot of getting the incentive. And I think that's important. We have to force these developers to build. We need prevailing wage. When I passed the ins- putting prevailing wage on the incentive agencies, there was a reason for it. Three tiers to why prevailing wage is, is important in Kansas City. The first tier is all the incentive agencies have been not using prevailing wage for the last 30, 40 years, right? And so the developers can come in and they can hire these, you know, out-of-town groups that bring in their own workers that actually, you know, they pay them 10 bucks an hour, 15 bucks an hour. That was one re- one way they did it. Others would hire 1099s. So everybody that would be on the job wouldn't be a real employee. They would just be a 1099 and they'd just get a flat fee and then they'd have to pay their own taxes. And then the other third way, which was the most despicable way, was they would hire a labor broker. They were all over this city. They, they still are all over the city. These labor brokers, they would go into their own communities a lot of the Hispanic communities and take these undocumented workers and put them on these job sites are great workers, but in many cases, they wouldn't even pay them. You know, they'd be telling them they'd get 30 bucks an hour or 20 bucks an hour, and then they'd pay them five bucks an hour and say, well, you got to come to the next job with me. I, I didn't make enough on this one. So come over here and I'll get you back your money over here. Well, they were doing that. It was a shell game and, and they've been doing that for 30 years, but the city couldn't go on the job because we didn't have any wage orders. You know, we, we couldn't tell them what they had to pay. They could pay whatever they wanted by putting prevailing wage on the incentive agencies, we now have the power to go on and do compliance on those job sites where we can ask those guys on that job site, how much are you making? Who are you working for? What scope of work are you doing? How long have you been on the job? And then then we can demand a certified payroll from the contractor. And now with the wage theft laws, we can actually charge that guy with criminal behavior, the contractor, instead of the, the labor broker who they've hired, because he just goes and changes his name and you never see him again. So now the, the criminal charges are now going to be put upon the general contractors who are in charge of hiring this guy. And that gives us an ability to walk on those jobs and find out. And we're hoping that cleans up the job sites here and offers more job to our community members rather than people from outside of the city, outside of the state coming in and doing this. So we're hoping we can generate more control over these job sites. Kevin, I'm going to be completely honest with you, my friend. This is probably one of the most candid conversations I have ever had with an elected official. And I just want you to know that I'm loving every single bit of it. Sorry. 
Oh, no, don't you apologize. This has been wonderful. I have enjoyed this so much. In fact, it's going so well, city council member, that I would like to ask you another question since we're, you know, since we're just vibing sure. here on this KC Morning Show. Sure. Mr. O'Neill, are you going to run for re-election? You know, I guess I, I look at this as it'll be a four-year project, me being on the council. And, and I haven't said anything to get me in too much trouble yet. I'm, I'm sure I will at some point. But, you know, I, I feel like I've gotten on and I've done some things that I wanted to do. There's a lot more things that I feel I can do. Yeah, I, I think at this point I am going to run again. I think that uh, I bring a vision to the Northland that I, I think is important and, and I want to continue that vision. This has been the best job I've ever had in my life. I, I've never been as stressed out. And I think the stress comes from there's so little difference in some decisions you make that things that you're trying to make decisions on have so much impact on either side you go. It is very stressful from that perspective. The other stress I get is I don't know enough about a certain issue and I have to vote on it. And, and that's, you know, that stresses me out. I'm, I'm just not used to that. You know, I, I'm used to being in an industry that I knew a lot about. So my decision making was pretty easy, you know, based on my ideology or whatever. And, and a lot of the things that we do here are not based on ideology. They are based on simple agendas. And a lot of times the hardest part about this job is figuring out, you know, when you got these multi-talented lawyers, you know, real estate lawyers, uh, whatever they, you know, whatever industry they're representing, you know, they're paid very well to make sure that you understand that their project, you can't say no to this. So you have to figure out agendas and, and that's a very difficult thing to do. You know, who's, who's kind of conning you and who's not. So that, that's been, that's been a real awakening for me. Cause as I said, I'm, I'm not the smartest guy in that room and, um, sometimes you feel like you're really uh, dealing with some very, very bright people. So the real question, though, is, Kevin, is your wife going to let you run again? Let's be real. That's the real question. <laughs> she says I can. I, I don't know <laughs> if I believe her. <laughs> She's been great. You know, when I uh, when I decided to do this, she was retiring from AT&T after 30 years. And, and beautiful woman. I way out kicked my coverage on her. <laughs> but she started helping me with the paper and I asked her, I said, well, you know, you're going to probably, you know, if you can help me, you, you, you'll do about 50% and I'll do about 50%. Well, I never realized the, the council was this difficult and I, she's probably pretty much doing 95% of it now. <laughs> her and Tristan. So we hired Tristan to kind of come on board and, and he's done a great job of learning what, you know, the, the industry and, and he's been a real good calming force. So yeah, I, I, I want to run just because, I think I can still make a difference. Kevin O'Neill, he is your city councilman from the 1st District. My friend, like I said, I have so enjoyed this. Will you come back on the show? I would love to, Hartzell. And thank you so much. I look forward to someday meeting you in person. Someday? <laughs> that someday's going to be very soon, sir. <laughs> okay, very, bud. very soon. Well, thank you for having me. And anytime you ever need anything, please don't hesitate to call. Don't you know talking about a revolution sounds don't you know talking about a revolution it sounds like a whisper while they're standing in the welfare lines crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation wasting time in the unemployment lines sitting around waiting for a promotion don't you know talking about a Gonna rise up, get there, yeah. Poor people gonna rise up and take what's there. 